Today, I noticed that uh, most people, when they walked in, they're like, man, look at the snacks. There's like healthy options. There's like green, those green things, you know, what do they call broccoli? You know, I actually like broccoli and there's peas and carrots and, you know, the ranch that we counteract all of the healthiness that we, you know, get from consuming the the vegetables and there's fruit. Um, It's not that there's any, it's not Mother's Day. It's not Easter. We had a, a funeral here yesterday for Cora Roach. And uh, Cora was a sweet, sweet 93-year-old lady who walked with the Lord for many, many years. And uh, it, for me, kind of walking with her through death was a special thing. Um, to see God's grace abound in death and the intimacy there, there's something that's beyond words. And her dying at the hospital, it sort of struck me in a new way, unlike any other funeral or or not funeral but actually dying process that i've been to i remember coming home and and talking with anna and saying man i i feel like i just went to the hospital and visited like a a a lady who was in labor and welcoming like a child into the world was sort of the warm environment of her room um with the people surrounding her and her christ-likeness and and although we were not gaining a new person, but she was transitioning into her new life. And it was really, I lacked the words to express what I saw and felt in those moments. And I don't know what you, your experience with death has been, or if you remember the first time that you were sort of faced with death. Uh, my first time, I was probably, oh, six years or so. And a call came in. It was nighttime. It's blurry in my mind. But I knew that by the phone call, something bad was happening. And I got word that my grandpa Bain, my fishing buddy, was in, he, was, he was either dead or he was in the process of dying. And as a six-year-old child, I was just... I, I, I don't even know that I knew what to... How to deal with what I was feeling or this idea of death. My naive world that had never experienced this. I don't think I even had a dog or anything die. I didn't realize that my fried chicken came from a chicken that like was living once and died. It just was food that I liked eating. And so as my grandpa died, it was sort of one of those, it was like my brain just seized. And then of course life moved on. Then the next grandparent died still overwhelming that I entered into high school and I lost a number of dear friends through accidents. And then I went to the SEAL teams and lost a number of dear friends over the course of years. And death is one of these things that it's, we just sort of, it short circuits in our brain. We don't know how to deal with it. And as I grew and started seeing death and I feel like I've seen more death than your average person, even as a pastor. Like, I'm thankful Laura's getting married because I'm due for a wedding. You know, weddings are fun, but I feel like God's just given me a lot of funerals, which I thank him for that. It's a special thing. But but there was this, before I was a Christian, even, and even as, to be honest with you, even as a Christian, I, I feel like I'm on this huge conveyor belt, just move, slowly moving to the edge of this cliff, and I'm going to get to the edge and there's nowhere I could run left or right to avoid it. I can't run backwards. I'm going to go off the edge and I'm going to die. 
And there's something within that just wants to resist this. That at funerals, even yesterday in this room, the core of this dear lady who's 93 years old, who had her 93rd birthday, she's ran and raved about, I can't believe I'm still here. I should have been gone decades ago. Like, what am I still doing here? Like, she's like, I'm ready to move on. But we still are just weeping. And Jesus is recorded twice in the scriptures as crying. One of the times was at Lazarus' death. And and the thing that strikes me there when he sees everybody dealing with the death of this man, he starts crying. Now, Jesus is God. He knows what he's about to do. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet before that, he's weeping. And I think the reason it hits us so hard is because God has placed eternity in our hearts, according to Solomon and Ecclesiastes. We were never created for death. We were created for eternity. And today's passage is, well, when I read it, you'll see. I'm going to read it, and you're going to hang with me for about three words, and then you're going to be like, oh, great. How's Gunnar going to unravel this one? It's like this big, complex compare and contrast, talking about death and sin and how it all fits together. But in context, it's so critical. This passage is super important for us to understand To review the first three chapters of Romans as we've been going through, Paul makes the case that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we read this, at least when I read it, I come to the understanding that I'm on the stand as a human and that I'm guilty of sin and that sin has condemned me. Most reasonable people will acknowledge that they themselves have sinned. Paul from there transitions to the cross, that in the cross, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's transforming power through belief that we're, we're, we're declared justified before the Lord. And he, he begins to reason from his Jewish side. Now, what about us being Jews? What about the law? What about all of this stuff? Aren't we, aren't we working our way for salvation? And Paul in chapter 4 goes to, to Abraham. And he says, remember our father Abraham. Abraham came before the law. Before circumcision, before any of this, God gave him a promise and he believed. And upon belief is why he was declared righteous, that it was by faith. And Paul shows that through this, that all humanity are now connected to Abraham through faith in Christ. That if you've trusted in Christ, you become a descendant of Abraham. And from Abraham, coming into chapter 5, verse 1, where we were last week, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, some would say, many would say, I'm okay with this saying as it helps us kind of remember what justified means. I, I, I disagree with it in a sense because it gets our minds going the wrong direction. But what's said is just as if I've never sinned, Right? Now, the issue is we're, to, we're justified through faith, even though you've, already, you've sinned and you'll continue to sin. This is a legal term. The opposite of justification is condemnation. What a judge would issue somebody that's on trial. And so we've been declared justified, not innocent, not free of guilt, not free of sin. We are guilty, but because of Jesus' work on the cross... 
Through faith in him, it's credited to our account and we're declared justified. Beautiful thing. And from this, he says that because through because of justification through faith, we have peace with God, not peace from God, peace with God. That God's wrath that is revealed in Romans chapter 118, that's due all of us for our sin, has been satisfied. The theological term called propitiation, meaning that the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ on the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we have peace with God. We're safe in Jesus. And from this, we exult in three things. Exult is not exalt. Exalt is to exalt something. Exult is a word. E-X-U-L-T is, is an intrinsic value. Something uh, to, to jubilee, to rejoice. And he lists three things. Since we've been justified by faith, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We exult in our tribulations, the pressures of life. That as we stand justified by God, we no longer see our trials and tribulations as random acts of this universe. But rather as one who is loved at peace with God, who is sovereign over all, that anything that comes into our life, we see it as God's greater master plan shaping us into the people that he wants us to be in Christ's image. And so as tribulations come, we're able to stand under that pressure, which he refers to as perseverance. And in perseverance, ultimately we rejoice in that because that builds character. And from character, as we become more like Christ, as we change, it gives hope because over the course of our lives, we see, look at I, the person that Gunner is today is not the Gunner 20 years ago or 15 years ago, whenever I came to Christ. Has it been a perfect track record? But when I look over, God's done a work in my life. There's character here that wasn't there. And that gives me hope because it's like, hey, maybe I actually am saved. Like on those days, like when it's like when not everything's going okay, it's like, well, I have hope. And ultimately we exult in God himself. And now as he expresses these things in verse 11, I believe what he begins to hear is how... How can Jesus' work on the cross, how can that save us? Like, shouldn't we have to do something? And many of us have the idea that we're sinners because we've sinned, right? But the Bible tells us that we sin because we are sinners. Now, before I go into this, because that's what we're going to look at today from this passage... The big idea is you're not condemned by your own works, which we'll look at. And so the idea that you could be saved by another man's work on the cross isn't a radical new concept. He's reasoned from Abraham. Now he's moving to Adam. And he's going to show us that how Christ and Adam are sort of linked together. They're types of one another. Don't worry, we'll look at this. And I think with this, it's time to read the Bible. We'll let Paul speak for himself before Gunner digs himself in a hole. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin 
was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the, dis- the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's a mouthful, huh? See how you could get lost after about the third word of that passage? Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, we come to you asking for your spirit to guide us, Lord, to illuminate the meaning of this text. Lord, may your grace abound as we study today. Father, help us to understand that which you want us to understand. Lord, show us how this applies into our day-to-day lives. Father, we love you. We pray that uh, through this day, Lord, that we would grow in our relationship with you. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So Romans chapter 12, it begins with a therefore following up of his thoughts from the previous section. And he says, just as through one man's sin entered the world. So so to back up here, Paul constantly goes back to Genesis. Genesis is, is the keystone, the cornerstone of understanding human history. And so from Genesis, he begins to make his point. Why does why does death exist? How how do we deal with this? What happened? How did it enter into human history? And Paul goes back to Genesis two seventeen, which a command was given to Adam. He said, "Enjoy life, be fruitful, be multiply, enjoy all of the fruit trees, all of the garden. Life is good, Adam. The only thing that you're not supposed to eat from." is the mango tree. I don't know if it was a mango tree, but the mango tree would be the biggest temptation for me. So I, it, would be, it was a tree of some sort. Maybe, it was, maybe they were all the same trees. Nobody knows. But there was one tree that God gave him a specific command. Do not eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, dying, you will surely die. You will die. You'll be separated in relationship from me. You have freedom to do whatever you want. 
And so the story unfolds in Genesis chapter 3, and we see that Eve came along. Eve never received the commandment from God directly. It was up to Adam to, to share the command with his family and to lead his family in walking with God. Eve ate of the fruit. She was tempted by the serpent. And then later, Adam walks in and says, what have you done? He's like, oh, this is really great fruit. Why don't you have some yourself? You should have, but God said this. And, you know, eventually the story, what happens? Adam eats the fruit. Immediately, their eyes are open. They see that they're naked. They suddenly have guilt, shame. They've sinned. Something changed. They go find some grape leaves or some leaves or whatever they do to cover themselves. God's like, hey, Adam, where are you at, bud? I'm looking for you. Adam thinks he can hide from God. Eventually, he says, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree? What does Adam do? Like every well-respecting man. This woman that you gave me, she made me eat it. He takes no responsibility. And God says, I gave you the command. You are responsible. We see that there's an animal sacrifice. A a, a, a sacrifice is made for the sin so that they could have some clothes. God in Genesis chapter 3 issues the consequences. He gives a consequence to the woman, to the man, to the serpent. And in the midst of all of the consequences... He gives a promise of the coming Messiah that a relationship that that Christ will come. He'll conquer sin and death and that there's hope and they would have faith in this promise. As the scriptures unravel, we see that there's more clarity given to this promise. But the promise has always been on the coming Messiah. They look forward with not so much clarity We look backward with way more clarity because it's already happened. And then God's inspired the New Testament to kind of help us understand more. But here in this story, back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just as through one man, sin entered the world. So because of Adam, this literal person, this isn't a, a fairy tale story or an illustration to help us understand stuff. This was a man. This literally happened. He violated the one instruction that God gave him and sin entered the world. And then he expands and he says, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. And if you follow the Genesis story, what happens? They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And then some angels come, cherubim, and they guard another tree that hasn't been mentioned in the story. And the other tree is the tree of life. So now... Death enters the scene. Prior to this, death would never have come into the story of humanity if it wasn't for this sin. And this is why when we see death, it hits us in a way that we just can't deal with. Because we have eternity in our hearts. We weren't created to ever experience death. Death is a consequence of sin. And he said that as Adam sinned, it spread to all men. So I've been thinking about this. A couple thoughts come to my mind. I, uh, I hang out with a lot of canine dogs. You know, not, oh, canines are dogs. It's sort of kind of a... I, I hang out with a bunch of canine handlers. Those are humans. <laughs> but they control their dogs. And so I've like really become fascinated with like the Belgian Malinois breed and the German Shepherd, and, and, and just these animals from seeing them work in law enforcement. 
And so I've been doing all this research, you know, kind of finding. And so when you find like a high quality dog, like a dog that's like $30,000 or something, like some crazy price tag on this dog, they have their like pedigree that takes it back to like, you know, Sirhan somewhere, like in Germany, like 18 whatever. I think it was like the 1900s when the breed was invented. Well, all of us, we sort of have a pedigree. And if you follow our DNA, you can go back to your parents and then you can go to your grandparents. And then most, some of us can even go to our great-grandparents, but then it starts getting blurry. But if you follow the DNA that's in your body, if you were able to follow it all the way back, your flesh, your blood, your DNA would link you all the way back to Adam. So that in that moment when Adam sinned, you were there in your flesh. For the Jewish mind, this would be perfectly logical. This would make per- that's how they thought. We as Americans, we don't we don't think from generation to generation. We're kind of we we come into the world. We're like we're our own people. I'm going to go conquer, divide. What my family's name doesn't mean anything. But to the, no, there was this idea that to help. Uh, another concept has come into my brain, just coming from Israel. If you go to Israel, Israel's a long, skinny country. There's a Jordan River that goes that flows from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. There are three springs that feed the Sea of Galilee. From these three springs, they're critical. They're super important. They're guarded because water in Israel is is life. And so if you take these three springs, when the water comes up, it is pure, perfect. It's from the earth. If you were to go to those springs and then... I don't know. I haven't really studied on how to actually destroy a water source. But if you were to go down to the source where the water is bubbling up and to contaminate it with sewage water, radiation, something. And you follow the water that's out all the way down. All of that water would be ruined. Now, imagine if those three springs, the Sea of Galilee, the, sea, the Jordan River, all the way to the Dead Sea was human history. So the Dead Sea is modern day people and the three springs are Adam. When he sinned, he contaminated the whole line. His DNA, I believe, changed. And Paul points to this picture that you're a sinner, not because you've necessarily sinned, although all of us have sinned because we're sinners. We're born into sin. Your parents were sinful. Your grandparents were sinful. Your great-grandparents were sinful. All the way back to Adam. Humanity has been stained with sin. And he says that death has spread to all men. Every single person, and I got to talk to the other side of my brain because I'm always the kid in class going, but what about this person? What about Enoch? What about Elijah? What about Jesus? Well, let's take those three guys out of the equation. Every other person has died. Death has spread to all men, to all humanity. We're all faced with it. We're all on that conveyor belt. We all, if we're honest with ourselves, are we're drinking bottled water to try to avoid the edge of the cliff. Like we're doing whatever we can do to like, no, 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 playing Frogger in life. Like keep me alive. It's okay because God created you for eternity. You know death isn't right. All men. And then we get to verse 13. For until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. This is one of those things I never know. Like when I'm teaching the Bible, I, there's, there's like the theologian. Well, we're all theologians. If you have any opinion about God, that means that you study God. You have an opinion. 
this issue here brings up a critical point that I just don't know how much I want to talk about. I, you know, to play my cards, I'm a dispensationalist or a decaf dispensationalist is what I refer to. But dispensationalism understands from the scriptures that I want to try to explain this in simple terms because it's right here. That okay, first off, God is unchanging. God is immutable. This is a theological term for it. it means that God is not changing. You go to eternity past, God was God. All of his characters, all of his nature, everything is the same. You go eternity future, God's the same. God doesn't change. Now, how man interacts with God has changed over the years. And so Paul is begins introducing this to them. From the creation of Adam to the time he falled, Adam and Eve were responsible to God by one thing. Be fruit. Well, not one thing. I was about to list three things. But one thing they weren't supposed to do was don't eat the tree. Be fruitful, multiply, enjoy life, be happy. This is going to go on for eternity. Just don't do that one thing. That was the only thing that governed them. Then Paul says, then there's from Adam. I mean, sorry. Yeah, Adam. I got it right. I was so used to correcting myself. From Adam to Moses or Adam to the law is another window. There were no rules that governed them. There was a couple. This is the other gunner going, well, there's a couple. Like the death penalty was instituted. But there was no, uh, the law hadn't been given yet. Now, Paul's going to make a point. Because we find ourselves guilty because the law, the rules that God has revealed through our conscience can bug us. But there were no rules in large part given the law was not given. The 613 commandments of the Old Testament hadn't been revealed until Moses met with God on Mount Sinai and he came down with the commandments. And Paul's already made the case in Romans 3.20 that all the law does is condemns. The law never saved anybody. All it did was expose the sin that you already had. And so you read verse 13 and he says, for until the law, sin was in the world. From Adam to the law, sin was always there. But sin is not imputed. Imputed just means credited to your account. That you are not held responsible for the sin that you are doing because the law hadn't been revealed yet. So because there was no law, all of the sin that you committed... You weren't held responsible for because it wasn't there for you to know about. You you had nothing to be accountable to. And I read this in my flesh. I start thinking, man, that would be an awesome time to live. No rules. No speed limits. Do whatever you want. Whatever seems right in your eyes. Every Each man has whatever he saw in his own eyes. He did according to his heart or something close to those judges, you know, that they, they just do whatever they want. Awesome. Life was good back then. Those were the good old days. But then you read verse 14. There's no law. There's no accountability. Sin did exist. And how do we know that sin existed? Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned. Now reign. Think of a king, a queen. This word reign is going to appear throughout today's passage. Death has the throne. It is in control. No human from Adam until the law Still continuing to this day, but he's only speaking before the law, showing that every single person died, that death existed. And the reason death was there is because sin 
was there in their DNA. Paul is a great mind. He's a lawyer. He's making his case for grace. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What's he saying? Adam was given a command by God. Adam, don't eat from this tree. Adam said, that fruit looks really good. Surely I won't die. Surely none of this stuff will happen. God doesn't really know what he's talking about. From that moment, the second law of thermodynamics takes place that moving from order to disorder, death starts happening. Uh oh. Uh oh. Now, everybody from Adam to Moses, we didn't, they didn't sin. What does he say? They did not, verse 14. Nevertheless, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam. So those people from Adam to the time the law was given with Moses, they sinned because they were born of sin. They weren't violating any revealed law. That tree was gone. That tree was no longer there. It wasn't that Adam sinned. He's held responsible on his own. And then everybody that followed him is like, just don't eat from that tree. And if you eat from that tree... You're going to be in trouble too. No, when Adam ate, he contaminated the human DNA gene pool to help me understand it better at least. Hopefully you're not confused. Clear as mud. Okay. In the likeness of Adam, parenthetical statement, when he talks about Adam, he says, "Who who is a type of him who was to come? So now he's going back to Adam's shoes and he's saying that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. He's speaking from Adam's perspective concerning the coming Messiah. Christ had already come, but he's speaking towards Adam. This, 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 this likeness, this typology, this foreshadowing of Christ. Without saying too much, I'll let Paul speak for himself here. But essentially, all of humanity were born into Adam. We are sinners. First Corinthians twelve thirteen says that you're baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ. And so once you've believed, once you've been declared justified, you're placed from Adam into Christ. And if you catch that phrase in Christ, it'll help you understand the New Testament. If you read Paul's writings over and over and over again, he continually says in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We just think, oh, okay, in Christ. The opposite of in Christ is in Adam, in death, apart from salvation, apart from life. But when you believed, when you heard the gospel, according to Ephesians 1.13, that Jesus died for your sins, according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was rose again on the third day. When you believed upon him, you were baptized by the spirit. You were sealed by the spirit. And in that moment, you were moved from Adam into Christ, into the body of Christ. I've probably said too much. Verse 15. So now we see the contrast. We're going to look at the type of Christ. Adam was over all men. Now Christ is over all men. That he, If you were to look at this passage and have a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, have Adam on one side, Christ on the other side, and just sort of plug, you'll see a lot of compare and contrast between the two. As we go into verse 15, we see, but the free gift is not like the transgression. First thing Paul wants us to know is that when we look at Adam and we look at this hopeless situation of how contaminated we are, we're helpless apart from Christ. First thing you need to know is that the gift 
It's different than that. Totally different. It's not the same thing. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, many died. So if from Adam, basically every single human in history has died because of that one action, that's not fair. That's where we go, right? That's not fair. Well, it's reality. It's just what it is, what it is. We read this much more. Did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. In 1492, <laughs> wait, wait, in 1492, something else happened in 1492. In 1492, if you went back there, you would see a Spanish coin. And this is where I don't have my Latin memorized. In 1492, Spain had a coin, and on it in Latin, there was a phrase. It said, ne plus ultra. Anybody speak Latin in here? I don't. Which means no more beyond. And the reason that they put that phrase on their coins is because as at, at Gibraltar, there was a statue, something of Hercules, the pillar of Hercules. And on the pillar of Hercules was inscribed, ne plus ultra. No more beyond. Spain was the end of the world. Remember, there's a cliff. If you leave the harbor, you go too far, you're going to fall off the edge of the world. There's nothing more beyond, which is fascinating studying Romans. And this is just a side note, not that I love Spain. Soccer has been heartbreaking this week for Spain, but you know, that's, that's Dan's going to be doing some counseling with me later, you know, (laughs) to help me through my sports issues. That's no more beyond. Where did Paul want to go in this letter? The main part of Romans, he's, he's establishing his doctrine, but he's building the case that they need to get, they need to fund him or help him get funded to get to Spain, the outermost part of the world, because there was nothing beyond Spain and they hadn't heard the gospel. And somebody needs to tell them the gospel, as we'll see in chapter 10, because we are all born in sin. And there are people out there that are dead in Adam and they need Christ if they want to get saved. And so you guys need to send me because if you don't send me, they're not going to hear. It's the very reason that we take mission so seriously at this church because they need the gospel and we've been commissioned to go, but we'll get more into that in chapter 10. But that's as I care about this. But Christopher Columbus sailed out in 1492. And what happened? Did he fall off and never heard from? No, he discovered the Americas. And then he came back. He came back. It's like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, no plus ultra. (laughs) No more beyond. Apparently there is golden stuff because he brought back a bunch of stuff. And so 1492, do you know what they changed the saying to? They had to remint all of their coins. Simply plus ultra. More beyond. There is more beyond. And so when we look at the law, when we see the law, how it condemns us, Romans 3.20, that the law exposes us, that we stand silent before God, we have no hope in not in not even just by our own sins, but if we're all reasonable people, like we're all terrible sinners. In fact, when we covered Romans chapter one, everybody that was here that day, they stood up admitting that we're all a bunch of horrible sinners. I wish I had a video camera. (laughs) And we, we look at the law and we think there's no way that I can be good. Every time I try, I'm simply condemned. But look at this phrase. Much more. This is the idea of 
lavishly pouring out his grace. Go with me back to verse 9 of chapter 5. Notice what he says. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Then verse 17. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign. Oh, different reign. It's not death reigning. Will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then in verse 20, we see. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so we see that whatever sin there is, whatever condemnation there is for you. I think of dams that hold water back. There are some big ones, the one by Vegas, the Hoover Dam. There's some, I don't, I don't even know what the biggest ones are, but they, they wall this up so it's impossible for water to overflow it. And it's easy for us to get in our minds that sin has so built a dam that we can no longer have a relationship with God. And if you're like I was, I felt so guilty for my sin that there was no hope because I'd done this. But the Bible tells us much more to the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to money. There is no dam that can hold back the grace of God. Whatever sin is your life, it was paid for at Calvary some 2000 years ago. God's grace abounds all the more. He's lavished it upon us. Thanks to Dave. Every morning when I make my toast, when I taught through Ephesians and I talked about the grace of God being lavished, I mentioned butter. At the time, I didn't use real butter. I had margin. And so Dave gave me a gift of a butter dish and a whole thing of butter from Costco. So now every day when I put butter, butter, butter on my toast, I smile and I think of Dave and I think, well, I'm probably not using as much butter as Dave. But... (laughs) But all the more of grace, God's grace is being lavished upon me. Like I can't put butter on my bread without thinking about the grace of God now. And he's saying much more to the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the money, the many, not money. Verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Again, we see it's not like that one. There's a contrast It's not like the one which came through the one who sinned for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. One man, one condemnation spread to all men. Everybody stood condemned. But on the other hand, we have the free gift over here. Now the free gift. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. If you notice, Paul's like, if you read this out loud, you'll think, oh man, I skipped, I I went back a line. I just keep reading the same line. I'm skipping. 
Paul's making a point. He lists it a bunch of times. One man resulted, one man's sin resulted in death to all people. One man's act of righteousness resulted in life for all of humanity through faith in Christ. When you believe you're justified, this is a stark contrast. He's building the case that the idea that something could be done on your behalf isn't a new thought. There's great news here. And as he points to this in verse 20 and 21, he says the law came so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's building this case. Like, listen, the law, what did the law do? The law exposed the sin that was already there. If you read Paul in Galatians, he says the law is simply a schoolmaster. It's a teacher that takes our hand and points us to Christ, showing us that you can't do it. You try to obey the law. All it's going to do is show you you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You can't do this. You can't do this. You're helpless. But there's one who did it for you. And his name is Christ. And in there, there's life. The good news becomes really good news if you understand the bad news and the severity of how bad the bad news is. And as we lead into communion, there's a struggle here. Because as Christians, it's easy for us to go, okay, I'm saved by grace. I get it. But I'm constantly constrained and reminded of Romans 5.1. Go back there. I'm sorry, it's verse 2. So after speaking of the truth, that therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. This grace in which we stand. I always viewed grace as like this. It's a it's something that we're given that we don't deserve. Not this idea that we stand in it. Many Christians, we say, yes, I'm saved by grace alone. But now that I'm saved, I need to earn my good favor with God. And so I'm going to start doing all this stuff. And if I stop doing this stuff. Then my relationship with God is scarred that I'm. I'm, I've turned this system of grace into a system of works. I know I've told the story a bunch of times, but I, I like the story. And for me, it, it, it helped me understand this. I'll never forget being the, eight, the 18-year-old gunner who was in the Navy for about maybe six months. And it, awaiting my orders for SEAL training, I was sent to some, whatever the name, it was a long name. It was a boat people. It was run by SEALs, and they sent us down to Puerto Rico, basically to get beat up by SEAL Team 2 for six weeks to, uh, to, see, to help prepare us for training. So I spent a number of days in an ice cooler filled with ice and water and all kinds of other stuff. And, and on one of the days, we were down by the pier. And the SEAL that was like a new guy SEAL that was in charge of basically making our life miserable encounters one of his old seal instructors that was now at seal team six or dev group with the boats 
And so these guys have their two boats, their big old like Miami Vice cigarette speedboats with two engines. Each engine's 550 horsepower. They were so fast. And they're sitting there talking to him and they're like, hey, yeah, you got, we got extra room. You guys want to jump in with us? I was like, no way. So I hop in the boat and the seal that was over me was like, just don't say anything. Like he didn't want to give it up that I wasn't a seal because for him, this was a super big deal also that he was getting right in the boat. And so in these boats, the first row, they, they, they were like NASCAR helmets with mic'd up. The one guy in the center, all he does is steers the boat. The guy on the left, all he does is give the throttle and eases the throttle. The guy on the right, what he does is adjust the fins so when they launch off the wave, when they go airborne, that they will go just right because sometimes this is what he said is if they go nose down, because they're going so fast, they'll go into the water and submerge and basically destroy the boats. And if they go two nose up, it kind of causes a hard landing. So their goal is to do the right speed so that they launch off the face of the one wave and then land on the backside of the other wave. And I'm going, man, what did I get myself into? And in the very back, there were three seats. And these three seats, there was a bar across, and then they, they had a backrest. But, but all of those seats were taken. And then there was just one bar with no backrest. And there's like, okay, well, you're obviously the junior guy. Just go ahead and uh, just hold on. And now when we get airborne, you just want to, like, just absorb the shock with your knees. Man, and the adrenaline was, like, going. And I'm, I'm like, okay, here we go. We pull out of the harbor. And there was, like, a long, probably, like, a 500-yard stretch to get out to the ocean. And I could just hear the motors. Like, we weren't going that fast. But it was, like, there was, like, a throatiness to them. I'm like, I'm in so much trouble. Like, I thought I was going to die. Like, I was like, this isn't going to be good. And so we take off so fast. And then we're, like, hitting these these waves and when we were landing the like the shock drove me to my knees i'm like oh i hope they didn't see that and then by the end i felt like my feet were flying off the back and i'm just like slapping all over i'm literally praying that this ride would stop eventually they pull up to some island and then they start like launching 50 cal ammo and 40 40 mic mic grenades to the beach it was just awesome i was like a little kid in a candy shop going I'm so going to make it through training if this is what we get to do. And then there was like some guy came running out of the bushes like, stop, stop, I'm in here. And they're like, okay, ceasefire, ceasefire. We, obviously, it's a holiday or something. There's some the people at the beach didn't heed our warning. And so we're just kind of like hanging out in the middle of the Caribbean. And they're like, yeah, man, like, so I remember putting you through training. What buds class were you in? The guy says, oh, I was in this buds class. Then they look at me and they're like, what buds class are you in? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be in 198 in like next year. And they're like, what? And so then some stuff happened to me. I thought I was going to have to swim back. That didn't happen. And then we start the ride back, but I did have to get kicked out of the boat. So they threw me out of the boat. They made me sit in the water for a long time. And then they started chumming the water for sharks. So they told me. They finally let me back in the boat. And so now I'm wet trying to hold on to the handrail. And it was the longest ride back. I literally had no strength. Didn't think I could make it anymore. We pull into the harbor. They, they ease off the motors and we make that 500 stretch and it was just like, oh, this feels so good. I don't have to hold on. It's no craziness. And it was just what I imagine this verse says. You've been justified by faith. Now let us stand in grace. Christian, you've been saved by God's grace. Continue to walk in his grace. 
When you start trying to live the Christian life through a system of works, the weight and the burden is going to be too great for you to carry. So we come and today we're taking communion. I saw a quote that, that nobody knows who, I don't know who, may, maybe there's not a real quote. Maybe somebody made this up. First off, when they don't know who the author is, I start, or they don't know who the person is who said it. And then when you, when you Google it and about six different variations come up, kind of concerns me. So I chose the variation I liked. So I don't know who said it, but this is how it goes. Let a man go to the psychiatrist and what does he become? An adjusted sinner. Let a man go to a physician and what does he become? A healthy sinner. Let a man achieve wealth and what does he become? A wealthy sinner. Let a man join a church, sign a card and turn over a new leaf and what does he become? A religious sinner. But let him go by faith to the foot of Calvary's cross and what does he become? A forgiven sinner. We're sinners, people. I hate to break it to you. You were sinners. You were a sinner before you came to Christ. You're a sinner after you came to Christ. But you're a justified sinner if you've believed in Christ. And as the Spirit indwells you, you'll be able to go longer and not struggle with the same sins. But as we measure who we are, even as our our more sanctified Christian life, like the gunner compared today compared to the gunner twenty years ago, I'm a pretty righteous dude. But if I compare myself to God, I still have a whole lot of work to go. And so there's going to be people going, wait, grace, like, but what about the law? And next week we'll see first chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's like, of course not. May never be. Then you get to chapter 7 and Paul says, oh, I'm such a wretched man. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. There's tension. This is sanctification. In Christ, we're justified. Positionally, before God, positionally, we're good to go. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Then there's a sanctification called progressive sanctification. That from the day you accepted Christ until the day you die... Christ is doing a work in your life. He's making you more and more like Christ. That on the day you die or he meets you in the skies, you'll be perfectly sanctified. Our old nature will be gone and we'll be given our new bodies and we'll no longer have that struggle. We need to get this into our minds. This is what Romans is all about. It's going to drive, it'll drive you mad thinking about it. Mad in a good way, because the more you ponder the, the wonderful glory of God's grace and his kindness towards us, it's overwhelming. And so we take communion, a little cracker, crackers and juice. We remember that Jesus on that cross, he died for us who participates. I always, I always forget because I didn't really come from a religious background or like a, a super legalistic background. And so with communion, I'm reminded that, well, who's, who's communion for? A communion is for those who have believed in Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church. You know, you, you could have a divorce in your background. You can have you name whatever your sin is in the background. Have you believed upon Christ? That's the requirement for communion. And we're told that as we take communion, as we reflect on his broken body, the blood that was shed, we're reminded that it's not your own work. Your work is but a filthy rag before him. 
But we remember that when he died for us, he took on the wrath of God that was due us. And now we're saved from that wrath. We're safe and secure in him. As the wrath of God was poured out, we're told that God's wrath was satisfied. The theological word is propitiation. We stand with him secure. We're reminded that he did it for us. It's not what we did. There's great love in the sacrifice that he made for us. And it's that love that compels us to serve him, to walk with him, to do things. The things that we do aren't to earn relationship with him. We do this out of great gratitude and relationship. And then finally, we're told about communion. The aspect that's so often overlooked in churches today is in Corinthians chapter 11. I believe it's in verse 26. We're told that as often as we take communion, we're to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a reminder to us that we're to share the good news with those around us. He's commissioned us to share the good news. It makes no sense why he would choose us. I I don't know what what he was thinking. The good thing is news. I'm not God. And so you guys are all safe in that. But he tells us, listen, I did this for you, and now I'm trusting you to go out and to make disciples of all nations, to share the love of God. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. I'll get it ready. And when you're ready to come up, you can take some time to, to, to just pray, to confess sin, to ask God to help you. If you haven't ever trusted in Christ, it's a great opportunity to believe in him. And then come and get the elements, and you can just have a seat. And when you're ready, just take them on your own. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we, um, there really aren't words to express, Lord, the joy of knowing you. Father, I pray that as we live out our lives, I pray that you would, Lord, help us to understand uh, with more clarity, Lord, these two extremes. First, Lord, I pray that you would really help us to get a, a sense of the, the gravity of our sin. The wrath that it deserves. Lord, so that we could appreciate, Lord, the gospel. That we would understand your love. Your grace that's abound to us more than we can even comprehend. Father, I pray that as we... Lean upon you, Lord, as we trust in you, understanding that salvation is by grace alone through faith. Father, we pray that you would keep us in grace, Lord. We're so prone to to wander into religion and works and, and acts of doing things so that we can maintain our favor with you, Lord. Father, we just want to be swept away by your love. And Lord, may your love be the thing that compels us. Father, as we take communion today, we give you thanks, Lord, for the work of the cross that you've done on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would show us areas in our life that we're still struggling in. Lord, help us to let go and and to trust you, Lord, um, areas of sin. Father, we, we don't want this sin, Lord. We need your help, Lord. May your spirit have his way in our life, Lord, that we would yield to him. Father, as we go about our days, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take the opportunities that you give us, Lord, to share about Christ with our our loved ones, our, our friends, our family members, our co-workers. 
just people around us that don't know you. Lord, may our lives show that we actually know you. Lord, we do love you. We praise you. We thank you that through Christ, we no longer fear death. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.